Let's pray together. O Lord, our God and our Father, you are the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And we pray, O Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down and fill this place with your glory. That you'd reveal yourself to us here, O Lord. That you'd pull back the curtains and show us something of your beauty and your majesty. And grant, O Lord, that I would decrease and the people would only see Christ and the fullness of the glory of God resting in him and abiding from him and shining from him, that we might learn together, O God, how to preach him more earnestly and more clearly to the hearts and minds of your people. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. When I came to the Reformed faith back in the early 1990s, uh, listening to uh, Dr. Derek Thomas preach at a tiny, small church at the top of the Strandmillis Road in Belfast. And I came out of the charismatic church, I'd been involved in the worship bands in Northern Ireland, uh, playing uh, boogie-woogie piano playing in, in worship, and um, dispensational Arminian, many just other almost wrong and almost every theological issue you could imagine. And then I was at medical school uh, at Queen's University Belfast, and I heard Derek Thomas preach. And he preached a theology that could be felt. Like one of those newfangled light bulbs, I bought a, a, a chandelier for our new home in Greensboro for our dining room, a wooden kind of chandelier. And had these new light bulbs I hadn't seen before. They're like old-fashioned, newfangled light bulbs. They're kind of big and clear and, and sparklingly. Uh, you can see right through them. And uh, the filament in the middle, when you turn it on, it just glows. And it gives kind of a candlelit ambiance in the room. And when Derek preached, that's what it was like. His sermons, the words he preached, seemed to glow with an unearthly glory. What was it they said about Lloyd-Jones preaching? Or Lloyd-Jones said that preaching is logic on fire. And the moment I heard Derek preached, I knew I was hooked. Less would no longer satisfy and more could only be desired. I felt like Ezekiel standing on the edge of the Brook Kedar, however you pronounce that word, and um, (laughs) seeing visions of God in the sermon, his supremacy above all things, his centrality in all things, his sovereignty over all things. And that's what it struck me as Derek was preaching, that the weightiness of God was felt in the place. There was weightiness, but there was also sweetness. There was goodness, and there was also severity. It takes a whole Bible to make whole Christians. And as Derek preached, it was like that. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. When I think back to those days, there was so much that was impressive to this young man listening to Derek preach. There was the exegetical accuracy as Derek had this uncanny ability to bring the mind of the hearer into direct contact with the mind of the spirit in a given text. There was the application that seemed to sift your soul. You felt yourself surrounded by the all-seeing eye of God, knowing you right down to the bottom of your being. 
But what struck me most of all, I think, was the illustrative clarity of his illustrations. Had these great lofty ideas in the sermon. But lofty ideas, you know, are like a funnel cloud up on the clouds, up in the heavens. Rather impressive looking at the funnel cloud. But it's only as the funnel cloud touches down on the ground that it becomes a tornado and begins to do real damage in the lives of people. And likewise, it's only as our sermons, the lofty ideas of our sermons, it's only as they touch down with illustration and application to the hearts of God's people that the real business begins to be done. It's like Jael. Remember Jael when she she brought Sisera into the temple? It was really all words until she brought the the mallet from Home Depot and the... uh, the chisel, and that actually was when uh, J.L. began changing his mind. <laughs> so with our preaching, we need more than just words. You need to get the tent peg of illustration and hammer it through the brains of our people. <laughs> and so Derek would preach... And at times his sermons would roar like a lion. The first time I heard Derek, actually, I was driving um, to Newcastle, County Down, with some friends in the car. And Derek had this way then. He would yell a lot more then and, and more modulation, this deep, rich Welsh voice. And he'd go real quiet. He was preaching from Amos. And uh, he was preaching from Amos, and we couldn't hear. He was down real low talking. We had the volume cranked up in the car. And uh, then he said, you know, people often say, he said, that, you know, when I like to think of God, I like to think of. And he said, that's just drivel. The, the, the question is not, how do you like to think about God? The question is, how does God like to think about himself? And how can you know? And look at the God of the Amos, he says. He roars like a lion. And we almost crashed the car because it was just... <laughs> so at times the sermon would roar like a lion. Other times it would soothe the soul like the gentle, happy gurgling of a mountain stream. The words came alive and got from my head into my heart. And over the years, as I heard other preachers preach in the demonstration of the Spirit and with power, they had the same ability. Jeff Thomas, 50 years in Aberystwyth, Wales. He preaches with the enthusiasm of a little boy running home from school for the holidays, full of illustrations. Jeff Thomas, Al Martin, Edward Donnelly, Harry Reader, Charlie Chase, Ralph Davis, of course, Sinclair Ferguson, Alistair Begg, Ian Hamilton, John Piper, Mark Ross out in Columbia, Jack Campbell, David Garner, Dr. Kelly last night, the glorious illustration about uh, his son asking for money and the way God listens to our prayers and answers them. Stuart Elliott, many other brothers, David Strain. And their, their sermons are all marked by an experiential theology. Experiential theology, a theology that can be experienced and felt. And when I think back, when I think back over my life to the sermons that most influenced me, it's often the illustrations that come to mind first. And they lead me as if by the hand to the truths that move me. Now, of course, there's a danger here, isn't there? There's the danger of the skyscraper sermon. You know, you just got one story after another. (laughs) And the sermons in that, those kind of sermons are like broken pencils. There's no point. 
You've got to have something worth illustrating when you're preaching. Um, but I think in the Reformed Church today, we've gone to the other extreme. I think too many of my own sermons, actually very convicting when I was writing this talk, because um, I wanted to kind of be, be impressive you know, when you're preaching at Twin Lakes Fellowship. Um, and I really put a lot of effort. I thought, you know, some of these illustrations are, are quite good. I should think more often about my own sermons when I'm preaching because I'm, I was appalled at how feeble my sermons often are in illustration because I don't think enough about it. And it's amazing, men, when you really think how much better you can be at preaching visible words that can be seen. Um, and so I think that sometimes in some corners of the Reformed Church, there's a kind of an almost a hyper-Calvinistic, um, you know, we don't want to sully our hands with, with manipulative illustrations that kind of move people. And they're certainly bad, those smaltzy kind of semi-sentimental stories. I remember once there was a banker came to me um, some years ago, and you bankers, you know why cardiac surgeons love uh, getting a banker's heart for the transplant? Because it's hardly ever used. And... <laughs> He came to me and he said to me, you know, you know, he said, you use too many sermons, he says, too many illustrations. He said, son, he said, can I ask you a question? I said, yes, yes, sir, you can ask me a question. He said, do you know how many sermons Lloyd-Jones preached using illustrations? Now, I knew the answer he was looking for was none. <laughs> That's not quite true. Lloyd-Jones did use illustrations, not as many as Jeff Thomas but he did use illustrations. But I obliged him. I said, none. He goes, exactly, son, none. N-O-N-E, none. And then he gave me a lecture, and I, I listened. And, and I was kind of a cheeky rascal. As, as he kind of got up to leave, I said, sir, do you mind if I ask you a question? Do you know how many sermons the Lord Jesus preached without using illustrations? <laughs> I said, sir, I love Lord Jones dearly, but if you don't mind, I'll, I'll side with Jesus in this one. <laughs> but that's the point, isn't it? You listen to Jesus preaching. It was said about Jonathan Edwards preaching that his doctrine was all application and his application was all doctrine. Well, Jesus took it to a whole new level. His illustrations were all doctrine and application, and his doctrine and application were all illustrations. It's like that wonderful little book by Stuart Elliott, Ministering Like the Master. It's priceless. Buy it before it's out of print. Three sermons he gave at the Banner of Truth conference in Leicester some years ago on Christ preaching. And um, in that, he speaks about Christ's pedagogy. He just does three things. State the point, illustrate the point, and apply the point. And then he said this, but the thing about Jesus is he's often doing two of those things, if not all three of them, all at the same time, all the way through his sermons. Just think, cast your mind, mind's eye over the ministry of Christ Jesus in sermons. You've got two gates. One is narrow. One is burst the buttons off your waistcoat narrow. And the other is as wide as a marathon start with people hurting through it. Two trees, one laden with ripe, sweet peaches, the other with old wrinkled ones that are as tasteless as an old turnip. Two foundations, a man scattering seed 
illustrating the four different heart responses human beings make to the Word of God. The hard heart that's resistant to the Word and doesn't want to receive it. The superficial heart that always keeps the Word on the edge of life, on the periphery, and the outskirts. The divided heart that has the golden handcuffs chaining it to the lies that money tells and the desire for other things. And then the warm welcome of the pure heart that receives the word and receives the word only and bears fruit. And you've got illustration after illustration after illustration. A fishing net bursting with fish as it's dragged through the oceans. A wolf in sheep's clothing tearing the flock apart from the inside. You have sinners enslaved to sin. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Don't read your Bible. The devil says, oh yes, sir. Don't, don't. Pray, yes, sir. When your friend shares the gospel with you, skillfully deflect the conversation elsewhere. Oh, yes, sir. The weary traveler walking through the night in the blinding darkness, and then he lifts his eyes up, and there in the distance is the beautiful city of Zion, glowing with a welcoming brightness on the top of the hill in the distance. In the bustling evening, nighttime busyness of the city of God, drawing his heart out. Illustration after illustration, two men going up to the temple to pray, a shepherd on the, on the mountainside, the end of the day, he's separating the sheep from the goats. They walk together all day long, but now they shall part forever. Ten foolish virgins. Ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. Outwardly, though, they're so similar. They look the same way. They're dressed the same way. They carry the same uh, uh, um, flask. Oil thing, whatever you call that thing. (laughs) The same flask. Uh, They're doing the same thing. They're sleeping. They're waiting for the same master. And yet, deep down at the core of their being, there is different as salt and sugar. Five of them are going to heaven and five of them are going to hell. And it's not just Jesus. Look at the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah describing the horrific effects of sin upon the human soul. Postulating sores from the sole of the feet to the top of the head. All unclean. A stubborn vine that resists the efforts of the the vine planter to bring a fruitful harvest. Sheep wandering away. You know, sheep, it's not a... Children think of sheep as a kind of a cuddly bedtime thing you hug. But God thinks of sheep as stupid animals, the only animals who forsake a green meadow for a ploughed field. Ezekiel loved illustrations. Rebellious men listening to God with their ears unplugged. They had ears to hear but did not hear because they were rebellious. Or how much he delighted telling the story of the the valley of the dry bones and the rustling, rattling as all the bones come together into a mighty army. Or Amos telling the story of a man running away from inevitable uh, judgment, like he's running from a lion in the forest and he runs into a bear. He runs from the bear, gets home, closes the door, catches his breath against the wall. But there's a viper on the wall, bites him in the hand. Or David in the Psalter, you know, like a rubber ball going down the stairs, how he captures 
the, um, the, the progress of the soul away from God with those three verbs in Psalm 1 does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand uh, in the way of sinners, does not sit walking, standing, sitting, getting progressively bogged down as they wander away from God. And you know the thing about a ball going down, a bouncing ball? You don't hit rock bottom when you hit the bottom. You hit rock bottom when you stop bouncing. And you start off listening to the way the wicked speak, and before long you're laughing with the wicked at those on the way to heaven and how lost you are. Or the the wicked are like the chaff, that rootless, lifeless, weightless, worthless plant fit only to be driven away by the wind of judgment. Or Solomon, the sluggard, bolted to his bed, turning like a door on his hinges. And Solomon says, you know, you can get away with that lifetime for a long you can get away with that kind of lifestyle for a long time, but it has the habit of catching up with you in a moment of disaster. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like a man with a gun. Or the mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He that is cursed of the Lord shall fall into it. What a picture. What a picture. We often think of adultery and sexual sin as the beginning of the end of a man's ministry. Solomon says, no, no, actually it can be. The end happened a long, long time ago. When God gives the man over to adultery, it's often the final capstone of judgment upon a man who's already betrayed all of the values he held dear in the privacy of his own heart and in the presence of God at home. So here's the issue. All of God's preachers in the Scriptures used illustrations. If you want your people to see what you're saying, show them what they're hearing. And don't just do it here or there in your sermons. Do it constantly until they can't help but see the truth you want them to hear. It's like that Russian sniper, Vasily Sitsev. You know the one who was immortalized in the book and the movie, Enemy in the Gates? His daddy taught him to shoot wolves through the eye. It saves the pelt that way, you see. Now, I'm sure when Vasily learned to shoot with a 22 rifle, first wolf hit the backside, next wolf in the shoulder, third wolf in the ear. But sooner or later, Vasily learned to shoot almost every wolf through the eye. And likewise, men, if you and I want to catch sinners, if you and I want to help sinners bridge the, the greatest distance in all the world, which is from here to here, we need to learn to shoot the wolves through the eye. You might want to give the sheep a few warning shots, of course, first, but shoot the wolves through the eye. That skill came in, hap- in uh, handily for Valsay, of course. You remember in the, in the, it wasn't in the movie actually, but in the, at the end he's, he was being stalked by a German sniper and there was that moment when he looks out and he thinks he sees movement, looks up at this kind of hole in the wall 
sandbags, and he sees a helmet and a sniper's rifle, and there was no room to shoot except through the scope. And he killed the German through the scope into the brain via the eye. May God help us men to preach like that, sermons that can be felt and seen. So what is an illustration? I think an illustration is simply a tool for making head knowledge experiential. It makes the truth sparkle in the mind, warm the heart, stir the affections, convict the conscience, and move the will to action. Like Nathan with King David, you've got this problem, you've got to go to King David and tell him he's a sinner. And David can chop off your head for a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason. What do you say? Nathan, or David, let me tell you a story about a poor man and the only wee ewe lamb he owned in all the world and loved with all his heart. How did that story end? It moved David to the core of his being. And men, one of the things that God has taught me through many failures in my ministry that if I am to move people with theology, I first must be moved by theology myself. I find it very hard to help people feel the truth I'm preaching unless I feel it. The glory of God, the weightiness of sin, the length of eternity, the certainty of judgment. These are realities that have got to move me and you to grip us in the vice-like grip of the majesty of God. And that's the problem, isn't it? The river rarely flows higher than the stream. And so we need to pray, oh God, move me. Teach me to feel the truths I'm preaching, oh God. Save me, as was Owen said. Deliver me, oh God, from, feeling, from preaching an unfelt Christ. So when should we use illustrations and how? Generally speaking, I try to use illustrations in a sermon as much as possible, but for two fundamental reasons. Truths I want people to grasp with their minds or truths I want people to feel in their hearts. I want them to understand it in their minds or feel it in their hearts and often both at the same time. So a truth you want to understand uh, in your mind, like Thomas Goodwin's famous story of the two giants. You heard the story of the two giants, Thomas Goodwin? Covenant of works, covenant of grace. Covenant of works God made with all, man, all men in Adam. Covenant of grace, the covenant God made with some men in Christ. And Goodwin described that covenant gloriously as like two mighty giants, these huge towering men, the only two men who really mattered in all the world. One is Adam, the other is Christ. And these giants, like all giants, got this big black belt with a brass buckle. And on that belt there are hooks, and on those hooks there are men. And on Adam's belt there, there stands every single human being who ever lived. When Adam fell, all men sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Therefore, as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam fell and brought every man down to the ground. And that would have been it. 
But God sent another giant. And God, in his great mercy, reached down and took some men off Adam's belt and put them onto Christ's belt. And this mighty giant stood against the horrific onslaught of hell. And he did not fall. And all of the, the, the men and women and boys and girls attached to Christ's belt stand secure forever simply and only because of the standing of Christ, the great giant. Understand in the head. What about a truth you want men to feel in their heart? Well, think of the the well-worn illustration. You've got iniquity, transgression, and sin, the three great uh, um, evil words in the Old Testament. And the, we all know the word sin um, carries the idea of falling short of the mark, firing an arrow at the mark, and missing. Now, we use that illustration all the time. The problem is, it kind of creates the, 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 the thought in the minds of people, doesn't it, that these poor sinners are doing the very best that they can. Like some of Campbell's commandos yesterday, out shooting, and we're firing, and Jack's saying, hit the metal plate. You know you've hit it, you hear the ding, and they're like, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> it's not going very well. There's not many dings going off here. But we're doing the best that we can. That's not the way it is with sinners missing the mark, is it? Because our missing the mark is often willful and deliberate. So how do you adjust missing the mark to carry the idea of willful and deliberate? That's one of the things we'll talk about, is really trying to clarify what am I trying to get in the illustration? What am I, what's the point of it? So I'm trying to make missing the mark willful and deliberate, and I think... I hear a police officer in the news getting shot dead by one of his friends in a crossfire, and I think to myself, okay, you've got Peter and James, two police officers, they're partners, been friends all their life, but Peter's having, a, Peter's having an affair with James's wife. And they're called to a bank robbery, and Peter and James run into the bank. Out come the bank robbers. Peter's on the left, James is on the right. And there's Peter, the adulterer, draws a bead on the bank robber coming out the, out the door, AK-47 in hand, the bank robber. He puts the front sight on the center of the chest of the bank robber, and then the speed of thought, he looks over the left shoulder of the bank robber, and he sees James. And he fires three times. The first two rounds go into the center of the chest of the bank robber. And then accidentally on purpose, as the gun rises with the second shot, he puts the third round into the head of James. He missed the mark willfully and deliberately. And the power of that illustration is it arouses the emotions, doesn't it? You hear that story, you've got an ounce of humanity in your soul. You rise up and you say, the blackguard! And then, if I can borrow one from Dr. Davis, you ask, you suddenly realize, hold on a second, I'm not looking at Peter through a window, I'm actually looking at him in a mirror. I have the same thoughts and the same heart and the same willful and deliberate capacity to miss the mark before God. So how so how do you when you're preaching 
Let's think a little bit about ways to generate, to, to generate um, illustrations during the sermon writing process. So turn your Bible second to Isaiah 53. I was preaching recently on Isaiah 53. Um, I'm going to spare you the whole sermon. You're going to get five minutes of just... I'm going to try to go back and think about how did... When I'm writing this sermon... And it's really, it's just really embarrassing. I mean, I'm a young man. There are thousands... Well, maybe not thousands. There's well over hundreds of you in this room who know much more about illustration and preaching than I do. But I'm here and I've been asked to do this. So you'll forgive me. Bear with me as I take you through my wearisome effort of trying to generate illustrations. So I'm preaching from Isaiah 53, and what I'm thinking about, the, the idea in the sermon, the big idea in the sermon is metaphors of misery. What was the cross like in the experience of our Lord? And Isaiah's language is very graphic, so I have graphic points, and I'm just going to work, work through the first three points of the sermon. There were more, and I'm not going to go through that. I'm not even going to go through the points, just the illustrations. So the first point from verse uh, 3, what was the cross like for Jesus? It was a burden as big as the world. A burden as big as the world. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Notice the word sorrows and grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and he did not esteem, and we did not esteem him. So the text here is obviously talking about the Jews, and they rejected Jesus because he was such a misery guts. He was a man of sorrows. Matthias says sorrows, plural, not just a man of sorrow, but sorrows, as if sorrow was his chief and fundamental attribute. And he wasn't a misery God. Yes, Michael Card is right. Christ could laugh with all of the fullness of his heart. But as we all know, the Bible records him weeping much more than laughing. And the reason, of course, was because there's hell to pay for our redemption. Not a laughing matter. And the shadow of the cross followed him constantly. Man of sorrows. And so the Jews mock him. What a, who wants a crucified saviour? This man who's so sorrowful and so grieved. But they never stopped to ask the question, why was he so sorrowful? Why was he so grieved? Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. So the idea, a burden as big as the world. Okay, And the idea in the sermon was this sense of the burden, the shadow of the great sadness that followed Christ as the sorrow of all of man's sins right back from the beginning, the shame, the guilt of them, the burden of them, the blame of them crushed him down and the burden was as big as the world. The burden of every, every uh, the sins of the whole world. I'm not on a minion, bear with me, you know what I mean, but it's a huge burden. Now, that's the point. So I'm thinking, okay, so illustration, burden, 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 burden. And people can't, people can't cope with that burden. It's too big. You can't get your brain around it. It's massive. So what do you do? Well, I'm thinking through burden, burden, blame, burden, <sighs> illustration. I think, hold on. How much I hate feeling the burden of blame resting upon my soul. I will do almost anything to avoid it, even for the most inconsequential things. So made-up story. Um, it's Thursday night, we're having the Johnsons and the Smiths and the Cowarts across for dinner on Friday night, and Thursday night, at bedtime, Catherine Wick says, Neil, don't forget, don't forget, my wife would never be so stupid to ask me to do this, because I would forget, but don't forget, tomorrow on the way home from work, to bring milk, 
uh, not milk, cream, quart whipping cream we needed for dessert. So I go out next day, and of course, I forget all about it. I'm busy pastoring, trying to write a sermon that won't be written, get illustrations, it's all falling apart. Coming home in the evening, drive straight home, and I, th- and, and I remember thinking the night before, the last thing you must do when you leave work tomorrow morning, afternoon, is forget the cream. And it was. The last thing I did before I left work in the evening was forget the cream. I drive home, get into the house, into the kitchen, and my dear wife there, and she looks at me. Just a look. The cream. And I went, my heart falls through my pelvis onto the ground. (laughs) What's the next thing I do? Why didn't you call me this afternoon? You know I'm forgetful. Why do I do that? Because I hate just the inconsequential weight of the blame for a minor social faux pas resting upon my shoulders. So then you go from the lesser to the greater. Can you imagine then what it must not have been like for your brave saviour to bear the weight, the weight of all of the sin of all of his people throughout all of the ages? And it wasn't a burden as big as the word. It was a burden actually as big as God. A burden that God the Son felt himself in his human nature almost unable to bear. He made his soul sorrowful even unto death. He tried to imagine in his human mind what the cost of infinite wrath would be in Gethsemane. And McLeod's got this wonderful language of Christ's Um, finite mind trying to reach across the gulf of infinity to try and figure out what would the burden have been like as finally the cost of our redemption comes home to him as never before in Gethsemane. So a burden as big as the world. So next point. What do people see? What's the picture of the cross? A bad man getting what he deserved. A bad man getting what he deserved. Look at the next verse. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, verse 4b, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Do you remember Luther's famous comment about that, don't you? Um, I can find it. This is what they saw when they saw Christ suffering. As Luther said, Jesus looked like the greatest sinner who ever lived. And all the prophets saw this, that Christ was to become the greatest thief, murderer, adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer there has ever been anywhere in the world. Whatever sins I, you, and all of us have committed or may commit in the future, they are as much Christ's own as if he himself had committed them. A bad man getting what he deserved. And so I'm thinking about the injustice of being condemned for things you'd never done. You've known no sins of your own, but you must carry all of the sins of your people. So let's think about that for a second. Injustice being blamed. What's the worst crime you could be committed of? Imagine the CIA did a stitch-up job on you. They brought out perfectly photoshopped pictures of you abusing thousands of little boys and little girls. And the pictures were so clear, so Obviously, genuine. That all of the jury believes them. 
And the judge believes them. And your wife believes them. And your children believe them. Can you imagine the pain as your wife and your little girl and your little boy recoil from you? As you're, as you're led off to the, to the jail, jail cell? Or even the criminals will hold you at arm's length? And worse. And your wife no longer wants anything to do with you. But that doesn't quite get to where Christ was because in your moment as you were led off, you could in one sense comfort yourself that you were not really guilty of those things. But there can be no such plausible deniability for Jesus, can there? Because on the cross, the bank accounts merge. Can you look at Jesus and say, my my glory and my righteousness. Can you look at Christ's Father and say, my Father? Yes, you can. They become your very own as if they were yours because they are yours because of your union with Christ. And it's exactly the same in reverse. Jesus could look at your sins and they become his very own upon the cross, not because he committed them, but because he's responsible for them in the presence of God. And your guilt becomes his. I don't know, but that illustration helps me just a little to begin to begin to begin to feel and to try to imagine what it was for Christ. Picture number three. I'm not sport with your patience much longer uh, uh, at this point anyway. Uh, a beating that lasts forever. A beating that lasts forever is the third picture. And we see this in, in the six garrons in Isaiah 4 to 6. Six I-N-G words that carry the idea that tell the story of a relentless onslaught against Christ, of blows raining down upon him without remission, without anyone to stand in and say, stop, enough, the fight's over. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him being stricken, being smitten of God and afflicted. He was being pierced through for our transgressions. He was being crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, ever ongoing, never stopping judgment and punishing, punishment, so you're trying to help your people think, okay, um, uh, you're trying to help people think infinite wrath. How can I help them understand infinite wrath? And the thought comes to my mind, okay, if you fall into a bottomless hole, how long do you fall for? Ever. Okay. And if I didn't have much time, and I don't have much time left, but if I didn't have much time, that might be all I would say. But it's like going on an R1 Yamaha motorbike. If you put the throttle down too fast, you end up on your backside with 600 pounds of hot metal lying in an inconvenient place. And so you don't want to do that to your people. It's kind of hard to go from zero to infinity just like that. So I want to help them. So I start off, okay, think about falling. Now, I don't like falling. It's one of the things I don't like. So I want to feel the truth. I can feel the idea of falling. It's not the fall so much, of course. It's the sudden stop. But... So you want to help the children here? So you say to the children, boys and girls, speak to the children when, when, when you're preaching. They will listen to you. Say, boys and girls, they'll look. Give them a story or a picture. Boys and girls, okay, I'm standing at the end of, this, of, the, of the stage, what do you call this, the podium. If I take a wee small step off, how far do I fall for? Two feet. One, one small step for mankind and I fall two feet. Now, Let's go a little deeper than that. Saw a picture in the, in the Daily Telegraph in Northern in Britain last week 
of this, this mine shaft, unbeknownst to many Britainers, British people, um, people built houses over old disused mine shafts. Now, at the back of this man's house, he didn't know it, of course, was a mine shaft. But then rains and storms came and washed away the patio, and there, outside his back door, was a mine shaft, 15 feet wide, 15 feet long, a thousand feet deep, to water. And the article said it could have gone down another thousand feet beyond the water, you couldn't tell. Right in front of his back door. Walk out. One wee small step. How far do you fall? One step. Off the stage, two feet. One step into the mine shaft, a thousand feet. Imagine the terror as you fall into the suffocating darkness of the water, waiting for the water to, to welcome you. Now, they've gone from two feet to the mine shaft. Now, boys and girls, let's say there was no bottom for the hole. How far would you fall for? You'd fall forever. There are no small sins against a big God. As John Owen said, let him know this for certain. He that never had a great thought about sin, never once had a great thought about God. So when you're doing this, quick note, so thoughts, ideas, you want them to understand in their minds or feel in their hearts. And when you're putting your image together, you want to repeat the language, like the idea of burden, the burden of blame, the burden of sin. You want to use that burdening language or the, the small step. You know, how can, a, how can a finite sin bring infinite wrath? Because you're taking a small step against a big God. So you repeat that language through the illustration so they make connections between the two. What kinds of illustrations should we use? Be as varied as possible. Not just long illustrations, but short ones too. And Thomas Watson and the Puritans are the great masters of this. Thomas Watson said, saved, no it wasn't actually, it was Whitfield. Saved by works, easier to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. Luther's great one. You know, it's never safe, really, unless they're very small or the names have been changed to protect the guilty. Never safe to use children for illustrations. Your own children, anyway, at least. I do a little bit sometimes. I don't, don't embarrass them, though. But you can buy a dog. <laughs> My wee rat terrier, none the wiser. He is the source of a thousand terminal illustrations. And Luther said, Would to God, would to God, I could pray the way my dog watches me eat. <laughs> you have the steak, you're eating the steak, filet mignon, you've, you've charred it to perfection in the grill, and the wee dog walks in up on his hind feet with entirely ill-deserved confidence. I just know, I just know, I just know my master's going to give me some steak. I have no intention whatsoever. But that cursed wee dog sits there on the floor and looks at me with such certain longing. He makes me embarrassed not to feed him. But I harden my heart. I steal my resolve and I finish my steak. And Thomas Brooks said, I want to pray with such earnestness that God would be embarrassed not to give me what I ask. Brooks again, like a fisherman, Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. On the cross, Watson says, Jesus received an ocean of wrath without a drop of mercy. 
Blanchard, John Blanchard, the atheist can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a policeman. (laughs) Or the world is like a boa constrictor. It kills by embracing. And you can litter your sermons with these kind of things. Read people who do this a lot. Thomas Watson. Um, Listen to them. And it'll start to develop. I'm not naturally an illustrator. I like thinking in pictures. But it's only as I listen to men do that and think, why did did that illustration, Dr. Davis, Dr. Thomas, Harry Reader, why did that work? Why did that move me? And I begin to think about it and think, how can I do that? So I listened to those one-liners. I remember thinking about David running to hide in Gath. You know, if you hide in Gath, like it's Goliath's hometown, you're in a tight spot. And the Ebola virus was going through Africa at times. I said, if Gath is the best place to hide and you're David, you're in a tight spot. It's like if you're running from ISIS as a U.S. Marine and the best place you can find to hide is under an Ebola virus patient's bed, you're in problems. And of course, when David got to Gath, he stood out like a cockroach on a cheesecake. Moving on, okay. Um, so, 10 minutes. Can I have 10 more minutes? 10 more minutes. Um, so, short illustrations. Use also, um, use also uh, retail Bible stories. Retell Bible stories in your own words. Now, Jeff Thomas, I'd almost just say, listen to Jeff Thomas's sermons and you'll get this. But listen to this. This is Jeff Thomas. Here's Jeff Thomas describing, vintage Jeff Thomas, um, describing Christ's baptism. There's a great line of repentant sinners standing soberly and sorrowing on the bank of the Jordan, waiting to go down into the waters to join John to be baptized. Survey them there in your mind with me, standing in that long, guilty line. There's a thief, a drunkard, an adulterer, a liar, a bully, a wife-beater, an idol-worshipper, a torturer, Jesus, a murderer, a forger, a troublemaker, a braggart, a terrorist, a blasphemer, an abuser of children, a spendthrift, and hundreds more, every one a sinner. And there is Jesus made in the likeness of sinful flesh, standing in the line between the torturer and the murderer, indistinguishable outwardly, but inwardly he is wholly without sin. As the prophet said, Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. He stands with sinners in solidarity. He stands for sinners in substitution. He will hang on a tree as the Lamb of God and bear the sins of the world. And at last he will do more than stand with them in their sins. He will be made sin for them. That is why he stands here in this sinner's baptism, because one day he will climb Golgotha in love and stand in the closest possible contact with sinners, taking responsibility for their sin and answering for it before the throne of God. Um, I had a longer quote, haven't time to read it. Edward Payson has this amazing ability as well to take you, he takes, he takes sinners, it's from Psalm 90, his sermon, Sins, 
You've placed your sins, you've placed our sins in the light of your presence, Psalm 90. And he describes the sinner being taken up into the presence of God, following the resurrection trail of Christ through the heavens, past the suns and the moons and the solar systems, all the way up. And then he describes you moving up towards the celestial city. And there in the distance, as all of the darkness of the, of the universe passes behind you, in the distance there's a celestial glow begins to develop. And you come towards the city of, of God and you begin to hear the thunder, the light thunder of the worship of the spirits of men and angels made perfect and you come into the presence of the, of, the, of the of through the gates and into the temple and you're there in the temple and it's just amazing the language and he describes this and it's overwhelming and then you're in the presence of God the father of spirits your body can't cope it returns to the dust from which it was created and you feel yourself standing before the awesome Jehovah before whose presence the sun would look like a dark spot and there's where you measure your sin. Bring, he starts going through the sins or gossip or slander or so forth, and it's just overwhelming. But it's an amazing. It's, he's using his sanctified imagination. So I, I read things like that. Another one, read uh, Jean L. Giraudot's sermon on the last judgment. The last point is amazing. He marshals language from all over the Bible to describe what it's like to stand in the presence of God in the last day. It's an awesome, awesome use of sanctified imagination, trying to help people feel what it would be like to stand. And uh, it's, it's incredible. Just, just Jean L. Giraudot, the last judgment, the last point of the sermon. Incredible. So I, I listen to that, and I'm thinking, for example, um, of the leper. You're preaching from the leper, Jesus comes, the leper comes to Jesus. So short, so I start thinking, imagine the first day he caught leprosy, looks at his hand, and the spot's there. He asks his wife, is this leprosy? She goes, I don't know. He goes to the priest. priest says yes. Leprosy points to the leper colony. Imagine him, the last day he bids his family goodbye. They're all in the same room, but he's already in the far place, untouchable. Then imagine his life from then on, ringing the bell, unclean, unclean, as he walks through villages and towns, begging for scraps of food. Little children laugh at him. Mothers gathering their, their, their toddlers up in their arms, saying, don't touch, don't touch, you'll become dirty, dirty, dirty. Don't touch, don't touch. And he, he becomes, his whole life becomes a, a living illustration of the, of the reality of sin, the ugliness of sin, the scarring misery of sin. The uncleanness, the alienation of sin. As he's, and then he hears one day of this, this Christ who can come and can, can, whose smiling eyes can make a blind man see this Christ. And he comes to Christ. You've got a problem. Christ is surrounded by crowds. How do you get in through crowds? But if you're a leper, no problem. Like a skunk, the clouds, the scribes, the crowds scatter. And then you're before Jesus and you're on the ground lying. Oh Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then, he feels something he hasn't felt for years. The touch of a clean man's hand. And over in the corner, we Johnny looked at his mummy and said, Mummy, but you always told me if you touch a leper, you'll become a leper. And Mark says, that's exactly my point. And Christ says, am I willing to cleanse you? Yes. And more than that, I'm willing to touch you while you're still dirty. People like Jeff Thomas, Dr. Davis and others, they inspire me to think like that and to preach like that. I need to sharpen the pencil and move on. And so, men, I want to encourage you as we bring this to a rapid conclusion. 
Think of your whole life as an endless series of illustrations of spiritual truth. Thunder, no matter how dark the clouds, the sky is always blue above the storm. No matter how severe the storms of life, climb up and see Christ on the throne of He's always there, always Lord, always good. Think of the GPS unit we ignore because we think we know a better way. You're going through a new, a new town. You learn the way. GPS way goes this way. No, no, I know a better way. It's not the way sin is. God says, this is the way you shall go. And the sinner says, no, I think I know a better way, a quicker way. Preachers congratulating themselves at Twin Lakes. My congregation is bigger than his. My ministry is bigger than his. Like little tufts of grass, you know, in the middle of the, you're driving down to Twin Lakes and there's on the, on the middle ver- verge, the grass is there. Some tufts are big and some tufts are small. How foolish for the big tufts to go. I am bigger than you. And the lawnmower's coming. <laughs> and the lawnmower doesn't cut, doesn't cut the grass at the top. It cuts the grass at the bottom. And the bottom of our ministries is not how big our congregations are. The bottom of our ministries is not measured on the size of our congregation, but on the God-given grace-wrought faithfulness in our heart by Christ. So much more. Let me just finish. I'll just say one more thing. So let me, as we bring this to a close this morning, say this to you. For a long time I had on my... my, uh, for a long time, I had on my door, for 10 years, back in Savannah, I got lost on the trip here, uh, a quote from Charles Simeon, because there's a danger, men. There's a danger of thinking that if you use the right techniques, you can grow your church, and you can change your people, and people will just come and... It'll be wonderful. That's Pelagianism. It's important that we work hard, that we, we think hard and we pray harder and we write ourselves, as, as, as Balser Begg says, he writes himself, he, he prays himself empty, he reads himself full and he writes himself clear and then lets himself go in the pulpit. So important. But remember this, as Charles Simeon says, no amount of homiletical technique can make up for the want of a close, personal walk with God. That's where the power comes in preaching, man. It's not our brains, it's not our mouth, it's not our illustrations, it's not our hollering or our oratory. As A.M. Bynes says, you can preach the best, most articulate sermons, but if they're not owned by the Spirit of God. Your ministry will be as barren as a field sown with pearls. A field sown with pearls. Beautifully barren. God help us from having such a ministry. Men, let us walk with God. Let us know God. And pray that God will so rub the medicine of good theology into our hearts that we will feel the theology we preach and will preach as men on fire with the glory of God. That by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, by and with the word, our congregation will be motivated to press on 
and lay hold of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how pitifully weak we are, O God. If we went into the cemeteries of Jackson and preached to the graves and expected the dead to rise, people would lock us up. And yet that's what we do every Lord's Day. We preach to dead sinners in dying bodies and expect them to move. Not because of our words, but because of Christ's words. He spoke to the man with the withered arm who blatantly couldn't stretch out his arm. That was his whole problem. And yet your son, O God, said, Sir, stretch out your hand. And because of the power of the word of Christ, the man did what he could not do. O Lord Jesus, create the willingness to believe and repent and to press on in our hearts and in our congregation's hearts who might live lives that glow with your glory. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen.